I started going to these mommy and me classes with Lorraine on Fridays. I would try to go as much as I could, but she started it without me. And, and the women were all sitting around like two o'clock on a Friday, like complaining about their husbands and how hard their lives were. And these were all stay at home moms, right? Yeah. And I don't know what the hell Lorraine was saying about me, but when I was go in there, I would I, I was like an interloper. They kept they would be like, my husband this and that when he comes home from work, and then women would glance over at me, and I was like, oh my god, am I like the husband in the room? You're listening to the MILF Podcast. This is the show where we talk about motherhood and sexuality with amazing women with fascinating stories to share on the joys of being a MILF. Now here's your host, the MILFiest MILF I know, Jennifer Tracy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is MILF Podcast, the show where we talk about motherhood, entrepreneurship, sexuality, and everything in between. I'm Jennifer Tracy, your host. I'm so excited to announce March MILF Give is an organization called Girl Rising. You can learn more about them at girlrising.org. You can watch many of the documentary movies that they've made, including the original Girl Rising movie and a bunch of short films. And I love, one of the many things I love about this organization is that they really reach people through story. And that for me is such a big part. I mean, it's, you know, the heart of what I do is story. It's why I have the podcast. It's why I'm a writer. It's why I work with writers because I believe in the power of story. And for me, particularly in women's stories and girls' stories. So this is about getting education to girls all over the world in parts of the world where female education is not supported at all. Go to their website and check out some of their amazing films. It's really educational and enlightening. Um, and you can donate directly to them or as usual, if you write an iTunes review for MILF podcast, good or bad, <laughs> uh, I will donate $25 for any iTunes review made in the month of March. I will donate $25 to Girl Rising. So check them out, see what they're about. It's really inspiring and beautiful. And I love the work that they're doing. And I want to thank Liz Dennery for bringing this organization to my attention. Liz is my, my mentor, uh, one of my mentors. And yeah, so th that's, that's just been a really exciting discovery to stumble upon this beautiful organization. And I want to get involved with them a lot more in the future. So that's that. And also just a quick reminder, I wanted to let you guys know, we did change our rating in January to explicit because there's only one of two ratings on iTunes. You can either be explicit or not explicit. And so sometimes we have me or my, my guest will drop an F-bomb or say shit, or we talk about sex or we talk about, you know, things that are not child ear appropriate. So I just wanted you guys to have that sort of forewarning, but some episodes there's nothing, but just so that you're aware. And without further ado, I am going to introduce today's guest. This is very exciting. So today's guest came to me through Kimberly Muller, who you might remember was a guest a few weeks ago. She is a producer. She has just been a powerhouse woman in Hollywood for many, many years. Carla, Carla Hacken, our guest today, is truly a badass. 
And when I went to her house to interview her, she was so warm and so humble. And she blushed when I mentioned her Oscar nomination. And yet when you go look online at the stuff that she has done, the stuff that she has produced. And that's not even all of it, by the way, because she was a studio executive for many, 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 many years. And her name wasn't even on a lot of the stuff she was telling me. She's just incredible. Such an insightful storyteller, an amazing mom. I loved listening to her story and I can't wait to share it with you guys. So please enjoy my conversation with Carla Hacken. Hi, Carla. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. I'm excited to do this. <laughs> so there's so much to talk about. I don't, um, there's so many places I could begin, but I am going to begin with the beginning. So where are you from originally? I am born and raised in Savannah, Georgia, which is really unusual if you know me now, um, because I was raised uh, Jewish in Savannah in the 60s. Wow. And came from a large, tight-knit Southern Jewish family. What? How was that at that time? I would imagine um, that there weren't that many other Jewish families in Savannah, Georgia. Shockingly, in ratio to the, popula- <laughs> ratio to the population, there were a lot, uh. but it was still growing up in the South in the 60s. I mean, I was... You know, I had was beaten up more than once for for being Jewish, and then went to a school that was predominantly black, and I got beaten up for being white. So, yeah. Wow. There was a kid named Jimmy Walker who um, who basically ripped my clothes off on the on the playground because he was looking for my horns because he was told that all Jews had horns. Wow. And <laughs> how old were you when that happened? Fourth grade. How old are you in fourth grade? Yeah. Nine, Nine, ten. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So that. So yes, was... raised in Savannah, Georgia, but moved here when I was twelve. Okay. And what was the impetus for the move? My dad's business. Okay. And was the change, like, how did the change affect you and the family? Was it? Was it? Were you super stoked once you landed in LA? I was, but it was. It was. Big. I mean, I have a brother who's two years older than me and a sister who's five years younger. Affected her a little less than my brother Lawrence and I. Um, I came from a school in Savannah. My last year I was there was a, a brand new progressive education school that had 18 kids in it. It was for predominantly like uh, creatively gifted children, basically. Oh, that sounds and awesome. I went from that school of 18 kids to Portola Junior High School in Tarzana, 3,000 students. (laughs) Wow. Big adjustment. Big adjustment. But fun. The Valley in the 70s. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And did you feel like there were more, once you got adjusted, do you feel like there were more kids like you? Yes. Than there had been in Georgia? Yes, completely. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to be an actress when I was in Savannah. Like, who wanted to do that in Savannah, Georgia? Right. Did you still want to act when you moved here? Mm-hmm. I did for uh, quite a while, actually. Did you pursue that as a child? I did. You did? Were you a child actor in L.A.? Not a working one by industry standards, okay. but I did a lot of theater, and I actually took theater classes in 
when I was a senior in high school, I went to Pierce College at night. So I was getting I was getting credits in college when I was in wow. high school, but it was all in theater. And then I started at UCLA in the drama department. And after one quarter, I was like, "These people are fucking crazy. Get me <laughs> out of here." <laughs> I gave up like immediately, like my whole childhood. And then I got to college, and I was like, "No." <laughs> and what was it? What was it about the? the people that made you say? Was it like one specific thing or? Well, I'll back up a little bit. When I was um, the summer after my junior year in high school, junior year, yeah, um, I went to work at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut. Fr- friend of the family was on the board and I was very interested in theater. Like not like I didn't want to be like an actress like on television. I wanted to be in the theater. Yes. And so a I went real actress. Exactly. So I went to work at that theater basically as a techie, building sets all summer and I, I falling in love with the gay male dancers not knowing they were gay. I mean I was just so naive. I was sixteen and I was just so naive and um but when I got to UCLA the first quarter I auditioned for the play in the drama department and I didn't get cast and it was like what and then I realized like I'm not I'm just not cut out for this yeah yeah so then what did you change your major mm-hmm. to English and dramatic creative writing then I wanted to be a playwright oh <laughs> and so did you do a lot of playwriting in college yes what and was the poetry. name of your first play I don't know if it's my first one but I tell people this story all the time that um I was a creative writing major in the English department. So I, I was kind of more an English major than I was a writing major in a weird way. But um, in my senior year of college, just to burn off some credits, I took playwriting in the theater department, the people I had run away from four years earlier. <laughs> and and there was a playwriting professor there named Gary Gardner. In fact, I think he was there until he died, which wasn't that long ago. And, um, and I wrote a play called Daddy's Little Girl. I have no idea what it was about. I don't know where it is. I just remember that that's what it was called. <laughs> and we had to read it out loud as part of the, you know, finals. And um, we read it out loud, and he said to me, well, before I tell you what he said, let me just give you a picture. I was um, newly out of the closet. I was working at Fred Siegel on Melrose. I wore cool clothes and a beret and smoked cigarettes and spoke French and read existential poetry. And and so I, they read my play and he says, have you thought about um, writing sitcoms? <laughs> And it was like the, the worst thing biggest insult in the world. Okay, like looking back on it, I'm like, I should have listened to him. I could have written Friends. I could have been, you know. Um, but at the time, it was like the worst insult. And I, I literally never wrote again. <laughs> I gave it up after that. Wow. To this day? Well, I mean, I gave up pursuing writing as a career. Got it. Okay, so then what was write. the next transition? Really? Or is that we're going to jump ahead now? I've already taken you all the way from childhood to college <laughs> in five minutes. <laughs> well, there's so much more. Um, we, okay, wait. So, yeah. So, Savannah, California, yeah. public school, which was weird for yeah. me. Um, because we, I only went to private schools in Savannah because it, until my parents pulled me out of the one good private school in Savannah because they didn't want us turning into racist bigots, and they were tired of answering why I couldn't go to birthday parties at the Yacht Club. Right. So for one year I went to public school, and that was where Jimmy Walker 
looked for my horns, and then my parents were like, no. Yeah, this is And then I went to the other either. school, right? Yeah. So anyway, so I moved to California. I went to public school. We moved a lot. My parents kept moving around. Two years here, two years there, two years there. Um, <clears throat> and then I stayed in L.A., which I've told my my children was the one great regret of my life is that I went to college in L.A. And I did it because I was like, I'm going to be in the entertainment business. So stupid. Because I really wish I'd had that experience to, yeah. you know. So anyway, so yes. What did I do right after? So you gave up writing because I love the story. I mean, it, I can totally see all of it. And you painted such a perfect picture, as a good writer does, um, of that disappointment of like, oh, it's going to be, you know, whatever you thought as this young girl, like it's going to be dark or it's going to be whatever I'm imagining with the picture mm. you painted. And he says to you, about writing sitcoms. sitcoms which please remember what sitcoms used to be like yes. oh. oh my god it was yeah. such an insult yes um, so you hung up your your playwright cape well, cap yes. and you i wasn't sure what i wanted to do you know and i um i really wasn't sure what i wanted to do plus i'm a i'm a worker like i worked my way through college you know, my parents had money, but not money. Like, you know, and they, going back to my grandparents, we, we were all raised with, you know, my grandfather was an immigrant from Poland, and it, 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 we were all raised with such an, a strong work ethic. So I worked all through high school and college. I worked at Fred Siegel on Melrose for three of my four years of college. And and it wasn't just that I was like, I don't know if I'm a good, good enough to be a writer, which, by the way, I think I probably was, but I just didn't have the confidence to do it. Um, but also I, the idea of being alone with a typewriter and not getting a paycheck every week, and this is a theme that's now happened in my life as, as a real grown-up, <laughs> um, like, do I take a job or do I pursue my work independently? And um, so... I I just quickly was like, I, I have to do something. So I had a friend, and she um, she wanted to do... I forgot what she wanted to be, but she worked for a casting director. And that seemed really fun, and I really liked actors. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll become a casting director, and then I can still have time to write. So I thought I would get a paycheck and write. And... Um, so I worked for the small talent agency for a few months, and they were in the process of going under, basically. And I would just answer the phones and fall asleep at my desk. And <laughs> um, and then when that ended, uh, somebody that um, this costume designer who I had sort of befriended, who used to come into Fred Siegel, was like, "Hey, do you want to come work on this movie with us?" These two women who were a couple, and they also were costume designers. And I was, I was like, "Oh, that sounds fun." And so I did wardrobe on this movie that shot here night shoots and in Hawaii and that was part of why I took the job and I was like this is gonna be great and little did I know that on like the seventh day when everybody else was going to the beach in Hawaii I had to do all the laundry oh okay and then the night shoot someone's killed me and I was like this sucks I do not want to be in production so like these little things that happen in my life that I make this decision this is no I'm not doing this anymore yeah the funniest thing is that I love being in production now, but at that point I was like, no, I'm not doing this. Yeah. Then, I can't remember the sequence of events. Then I got a job in casting again, um, and I worked for this company. I'm not going to even say because I think they're still around, but they made these like cheesy, low-budget teen kind of movies. I worked on one called Tomboy, 
Um, and when I realized that the callbacks were were for these movies were for young girls to go in and take their top off for the president of the company, I quit. And it's so funny that like back then I was like, this is not right. Yeah. <laughs> um, then I was, and then I went to work for a really well-known casting director named Lynn Stallmaster. Wait, somewhere in here I'm missing some stuff. Um, I went to work for a producer, Barry Crost, who I'm still friendly with. I worked with him for just a few months, and I had to drive him around. I used to drive to his house over on up Doheny and the Bird Streets and um, park my car and then go to his guest house, and then I would wake him up, and then I would have to make him coffee, and then I'd have to get in his Jaguar and drive him to work, <laughs> and then I would answer his phones and everything, and then I would drive him to Mr. Chow for lunch. He was such an asshole to me, and he had he had a car phone, so which was a really big deal, right? Then, right? And with the cord, one of those heavy ones, yeah. And so while he ate at Mr. Chow's, I went to the Brighton coffee shop that's still there. Yes. And um, but I used to get him back for being an asshole to me, and I call my friends all over the country <laughs> from his car phone. <laughs> <laughs> you never get caught. No. Oh, that's great. Um, and. Uh, I'm not going to tell the story about why I quit. He's still, we still laugh about it, but I'm literally still friends with him. Um, and uh, so I just did all these crazy jobs, three months, three months, three months, three months. And I was working for um, <clears throat> Lynn Stallmaster, who's a big casting director. And um, this woman, um, Nicole David, would come in to visit. She was an agent, but she used to be Lynn's partner. And, and then one day I was working on a music video, um, and uh, this this agent came to the set, this crazy woman, I'm not going to say her name, she's a very successful agent, and she was like, I like you, come come work for me. And this was a, a agency called Triad Artist, and which was like kind of like a hot agency. They eventually got bought by William Morris. But, um, so I was like, okay, that sounded fun, working for Talent Agent. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. And um, so, and I called Nicole, who was one of the partners of that company, and was like, because she always liked me, I was like, should I take this job? Should I come work for this woman that works for you? And she said, yes, yes, yes. And so the next thing I knew, I was working at a big talent agency, and I started doing really well, even as a, an assistant. Um, and it was fun back then. Super fun. Yeah. It would take too long for me to tell you the Brad Pitt story, but... I've known Brad Pitt since the very beginning. You and can't tell us one like snippet of Brad Pitt. I'll, I'll tell it because he okay. tells it to people when okay. if we're ever in the same room. But um, back back then, if actors wanted to get signed, they would come in and audition for the agents. And and so some girl came in to audition, and her scene partner was Brad Pitt. And we were like, forget her. He's amazing. <laughs> Let's take him. Yeah. And so we signed him, and I was sort of. <laughs> If you know me today, that's this. I forget to tell my friends this, but I was sort of known as the assistant that when I would call to give the actors their appointments, because this is before email, yes. right? Um, that I would tell them what they should wear. <laughs> and so, and what they were, I was just very specific. And I apparently gave Brad his very first feature audition appointment. Like, okay, so you're going in, you're meeting so and so, and I'm, this is what you should wear. Um, okay, cut to many years later. I don't remember this at all. <laughs> I don't remember this at all. Cut to years later when I had become a full-fledged agent at ICM, and he came in for a signing meeting, and the, the, the bosses were, and I was a baby agent. I was like 26 years old and just started to work there. And the bosses um, were walking him around the hallways, and everyone's names were outside the door. And all of a sudden, 
And they were like, oh, and this is this and whatever. And all of a sudden, they were like, oh, my God, Carla Hacken. And he, like, stuck his head in my door. And I had this moment of, like, I, I didn't know he'd even remember me. This right. was years later. This was after Thelma and Louise. And, okay. Sure. And, he was uh, already a star. Totally a star. Yeah. And then behind him are the bosses of the company looking like, oh, my God, why didn't you tell us you know him? Do you know? <laughs> and he said... You know, he was like, it's so good to see you. And he's giving me a hug. And I thought I was, like, getting punked. I literally was like, is there a camera hidden? This is so weird. Because I didn't have a relationship with him. Right. And he proceeds to tell everybody who's now followed into my office that apparently when I gave him this appointment, when he called for feedback afterwards, I said to him, um, hey, Brad, have you thought about taking acting lessons? <laughs> And then he says this, and, like, the color drains out of my face. I'm like, well, I shouldn't say color, but it actually turned bright red. And I was like, my new bosses are standing there. I'm like, oh, my God. And then he said, no, 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 uh, thank you, because I went and took this cold reading class after that, and shortly thereafter I got Thelma and Louise. So I was like, look, I had a So hand. you're, yes, you are one no. of the main reasons that he is a movie star. No, it's just I'm I brutally honest. It's a problem that. that has followed me in life. <laughs> I love that though. That's great. And then he took it to heart. He was just like, sure, why not? Right. You know. Anyway, so I skipped over. I had was a triad for three years, three and a half years, and it was fun. And I they prom, kind of promoted me, but didn't really promote me. And, and during that time, there was an agent at ICM who I kept running into all the time because we were both theater nerds. And like I would run into him in La Jolla, and I'd run into him in the depths of Hollywood and every actor's gang play and whatever. And one day he said to me like you should come work at ICM. And um, and he sat down with me and we talked for a really long time and then the head of the talent department called me. So at 26, I moved, which I was like, I think the youngest agent they had ever hired from the outside. And, and they made me a full-fledged agent. And I mean, it was a big deal. Like, they like, I was making like $350 a week at Triad and they like offered me $30,000 a year. And, wow. And a car phone. And an expense account. <laughs> Yeah, that is a big. I mean, still to this day, from my understanding, I've not ever worked in that environment. But it's you start in the mailroom when right. you're like 20, right? And I never had to do the yeah, mailroom, and and, um, <clears throat> and so again, I sort of got off track because it I just wasn't anything I had set out to do. Um, but I turned out to be good at it. Like I, I spoke actor, right? Yeah. And um, in fact, I they handed me Sam Waterston and. He, we only talked on the phone for like six months and he hadn't met me and he just really liked me and I really liked him and um, and then when he met me in person he was like good god you're a child because <laughs> I was like 26 but I think I looked like 18 yeah and um, and I just I, it was fun and you know within a short period of time like I was you know it was just fun like unlimited expense account like fly first class to New York stay at the Regency Hotel Go to the office during the day. Have lunch with Sam Cohn, who was a legend, uh, at at uh, the Russian Tea Room. Go to the theater every night. Take taxis everywhere. And I was like, what, 26, 27, 28 years old? Like, that sounds so, wonderful. Yeah. So it was fun. And honestly, I sort of blinked my eyes, and nine years went by. So you you were there at ICM for nine years. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. I look back on that that section of my life and. There's this young manager right now who's like you know, a puppy who follow, follows me around. And she's like 30, 31 years old. And she reminds me of that time. And it's like, I'm such a different person. Like I meet people now who knew me back then. And they, I can tell they respond to me in a way they would have 
back then, mm-hmm. and I I'm, I don't relate to it because I'm such a different person. But you know, it's like us girls, we had to like we had to put the power suit on and the power bitch on to be taken seriously. And so you know, I was like, by the time I was 30 years old, I owned a house and I drove a Mercedes and I wore really expensive clothes and yeah. I, you know. And I'm so glad I did it. And, yeah. But I'm just so grateful that I had like an epiphany in my early 30s, early to mid 30s, I guess my th- mid 30s, where I was like, this isn't the life I want to lead. And um, and I changed completely. I just totally changed. Was it. there an event for that? Imp- was there an impetus <laughs> yeah. for that? There's a, a few things, actually. Um, I, um, and I know we're going to get to motherhood, but I will say that I had I really wanted I mean anybody that knows me knows that in my 20s I was like I want to have a baby I want a baby and and by the time I was 30 I really wanted to have a baby and and somewhere deep down inside I was sort of like I know everyone says that you're supposed to you can wait now you know you can wait like we're supposed to get our careers first right and and I was in a relationship with somebody who's now like my best friend but we were together for like three and a half four years and she was an actress, which she's not anymore, but, um, and I was nine years older than her. And I, people used to be like, why didn't you have a baby? Then I was like, because I was dating one. Um, she was, <laughs> she was such a child and so high maintenance and so much like having a child. And, um, uh, and, but when we broke up, I was really devastated and, um, and it co devastated for a while because it was part of this picture I mm. had which has now happened to me a couple times in life, again, recently, four years ago. But, mm. you know, it's like, I'm going to have this by the time I'm 30. I'm going to have the career. I'm going to have the house. I'm going to have the stuff. And then I'm going to get married and have a baby. Yeah. I had all the same ideals about family and white picket fence as sure. any heterosexual girl. I mean, I always joke and say that the Jew gene trumps the gay gene. <laughs> and it's like, I was still going to grow up and get married and have a baby and have a nice Jewish family. But, um, so, and by the way, we skipped over the part um, that I think is important for me to say is that I um, I could not have been more heterosexual uh in college, and um, this very kind of life-changing thing happened to me, and um, which is that I got sober, and um, I I was working at Fred Siegel, and everybody was a drug addict, and in fact, I mean, everybody was a serious drug addict. Like you divide Fred Siegel up between the uppers and the downers, and we wow. all traded. You know, and um, but I was doing so well in college, and I was such a nice sure. girl that nobody knew that sure. I had a problem. I mean, like my parents to this day, I think, don't believe that I had a problem because I I really masked it so so well. Yeah. And so, but I got sober when I was twenty one, and it was like back then. I mean, there were like three of us. You know, there was it was not cool and hip, and there weren't yeah. movie stars and rock stars yeah. in AA meetings. It just wasn't what it is today. And, yeah. Um, but there was somebody at Fred Siegel who I now look back on. I think I was in love with her, but she got me sober. And and so I, she was like the person that got me there. And I thought she was really cool. And she was the head buyer at Fred Siegel and, and manager and whatever. And um, so anyway, when I got sober, it literally was like somebody took like like the, the, the whatever, took the blinders yes. off. 
and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm gay. Actually, the funny thing is now we're talking about this a lot these days. I've been talking to my teenage son about it, you know, this world we're living in now where kids are declaring very young that they're gay or non-binary or like, it was not cool to say you were bisexual back then. You had to pick a lane and stay in a lane. Mm. If it was okay for me to identify as a bisexual, I absolutely would have mm. and probably still would yeah. in a weird way. But back then it wasn't. It wasn't great cool right. to do that. But. It made people very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. They were like, no, you have to decide. I had a boyfriend for a little while when I was at ICM for like three or four months, and people would say to me, you know, it's okay. We know you're gay. You don't have to pretend. And I was like, I'm not pretending. It's my boyfriend. <laughs> He's actually the architect of this house. Really? Yeah. Um, anyway, um, how did I get back on Starbucks well, Friday? That you were saying you were about to have the epiphany from changing from ICM, oh, saying right. I don't want this life anymore. But I'm so glad you went back and told that story okay, about right. getting sober. So um, realizing right, who you are. Right. Okay. So I, I, we, I went through this breakup, and shortly thereafter, um, big client of mine. I can't decide whether I should say who because there's such a funny story that goes with it. I don't think I will. Um, A big client of mine um, fired me, went to CAA for no reason, like no good reason. It was just because a big agent at CAA whispered in his ear and was like, we can make you an even bigger star. And, um, and, uh, And then something terrible happened to him, like, I mean terrible, like, Something really embarrassing happened to him shortly after he fired me, which was so satisfying. Um, um, uh, But he fired me, and I literally was like, okay, I don't have the the kid and the marriage, and what is this job I'm doing? It's so fucking stupid. Like, I had actors calling me in the middle of the night, waking me up wanting to know why their their size of their name wasn't bigger on a billboard on Sunset. Oh, my gosh. I had to get on a plane once in an, like, hour's notice and fly to New York to get my drunk client out of her dressing room. Um, I had psychopaths who were stalkers of my clients having my home address and phone number. And, like, it just was, like... But more importantly, it was just a cutthroat business. And I started to realize that my real talents were not being put to use, which is that I'm a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is a lot of my actor clients who I was close to were, were becoming writers and directors and similar, like the actors that I, or producers or, and like Peter Berg, I represented the whole, I mean, God bless him. Pete was not a brilliant actor, um, but he was a great writer, and it was running around with his one-act play as a writing sample that got me to the transition to where I am now. So, um, which I'll talk about in a second. But um, yeah, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, this isn't what I set out to do. I so I have all the trappings of doing well in my 30s and making a good living, but I'm really not happy. Mm. And um, and just this weird like fortuitous thing happened and um, I was running around with Pete's play and there was a new division of 20th Century Fox called Fox 2000 and this executive had read the play and he was like you know everybody here but I don't know you so let's have lunch and we went to lunch and he said to me um, I'm sorry I'm getting over laryngitis I have to clear my throat but um, he said to me are you happy being an agent and I without thinking about it said the most dangerous thing you could say if you're an agent. I said, no, I hate it. 
And he said, um, well, well, you know Laura, Laura Ziskin, who is the woman that started it. He's like, you know, you should call her because she's looking to hire a senior female executive and, um, and she likes to hire outside the box. So you should um, call your friend Kevin, who also worked there, and see if you should maybe meet with us, you know. And um, long story short, Laura offered me a job as a senior vice president of production. And, I mean, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. But I was like, yes, bye. Yeah. Say goodbye to all my clients. And um, it's funny, Juliana Margulies was one of my um, clients, and I had dinner with her last night, and we were laughing because I said that she was the only person out of 42 people I had to call and say that I was leaving. She was the only one that um, had the appropriate response, which was she cried. <laughs> <laughs> what did everyone else say? They made it about themselves? Um, a lot of them did not. Some of the ones that I adore, who I'm still close with, did not. Uh, there were a lot that did. There was one in particular that was really disappointing because she had been a friend of mine who I helped become a writer. She had been an executive, and I represented her as a writer and got her out there in the world. And she was the only one who, when I called, said, without missing a beat, who's going to represent me? This <laughs> 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 fucking business. Um, so anyway, yeah, so that started the what was the the next big chapter of my life, and, yes. um, which is what I consider this chapter. I mean, it's been the last 20-something years, but... That's incredible. Uh, doing, thing, ...doing something that I loved and that I'm good at and did meet somebody that I married and had children with, and so, yeah. So when you started as the... This, you got hired, and you said you didn't have any idea what you were doing, um, how did you... Did you fake it till you make it? Like, yes. Yeah. Um, I, Laura is no longer with us, so I don't know if you know who she is, but yes. she's the woman that started Stand Up to Cancer. And she was just a remarkable woman. I can't, like, talk about her without crying. And we had such a complicated relationship. She, it was, like, complicated. She terrified me and tortured me, and yet I knew she loved me. Mm. Anyway, Laura was married to... The most amazing man, Alvin Sargent, a really famous screenwriter. And a few years ago, I was talking to him, and because one of Laura's best friends was a really close friend of mine who passed away a few years ago. And um, so when I was talking to Alvin, I said to him, you know, when people, t when I talk about like when Laura hired me, at the time, I was like, well, of course she's hiring me. I'm fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on it, I'm like, what was she fucking thinking? I was like this mouthy talent agent with no training being a studio studio executive. I'd never seen a budget in my life. Had never spent more time on a set than cruising through craft service and hanging out with a movie star. And like I had no idea what I was doing. What was she thinking? She made me senior vice president of production. What was she thinking? And he was like well, clearly she saw something in you, and and she was right. I just needed to, I needed to fake it till I yeah. make it. Um, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing, but I learned fast. Um, what I did come to realize, which I tell people all the time now, and you know, I, I had a kind of a dislike for people that I met that were very film school students, you know, with a. A, a huge repertoire of knowledge of films yes. and like could quote dialogue yes. out of movies from the 40s and that <laughs> just was not me I didn't I killed too many brain cells with drugs I think um, I uh, it just wasn't me but I 
I am a natural storyteller and, and, and can, I always tell people that I can feel and see structure. Like I see it. Like if I read an outline, I like can, it's like a visual thing for me. Like, Oh, it flattens out right there. Like I just, it's a thing. And that was just the talent that I had. And that got me through learning the, the I didn't want the mechanics of of being a studio executive or producer is a lot right. of the same thing right and then you learn you know yeah um I was talking to um one of my bosses one day who was a chairman of Fox and <clears throat> we were talking about how arrogant this junior executive was and and when he had his own project for the first time uh like he just thought he knew everything and the thing that you we were discussing how there's it's sort of the Malcolm Gladwell thing about your gut, like, and it's one of the things I love about my age now is, you know, wisdom. You can't buy wisdom. You can't go to school for wisdom. Yeah. You, there's nothing that beats experience. That's so true. Experience trumps intelligence sometimes, yeah. you know. Um, I know some really smart people who don't do a great job at their job because they are in over their head because they think that they're so smart that they can do anything. And I, I gotta say, I, I really value people who've done it like way more than people who are whatever, you know, flashy, like a flash in the pan. Um, but anyway, what I was gonna say is that, you know, if you sit in, in, it used to be, we used to watch dailies in screening rooms, right? right? (laughs) And we would sit and, I would have to spend hours a day, especially if I had more than more than more than one movie in production, and I'd have to sit, spend hours a day looking at the the footage, and would have to make what they call selects for the marketing department, and the chairmans of the studio, where I would pick the the best take of every setup, and that would take hours and hours and hours, and just sit there with a this little dial and like speed through and a junior executive next to me marking it. It was like so labor intensive and. Um, But if you sit in that dark room and you watch enough footage, you develop a gut instinct that you, like I said, you just can't learn it in school. You develop a gut instinct and it is that same storytelling instinct too, which is like you sit there and you're you're like, oh, I've been here before. Mm. We have a pacing problem. Mm. I mean, I can feel that in day one, you know, we have a lighting problem. We have a wardrobe problem. We have a... A, a sound problem like you do it enough you start to know yeah you know? and um so yeah I don't know. and how long were you at that company 15 years i survived quite a few regime changes yeah and and made a lot of movies i'm super proud of but the business changed a lot by the time i left in what sense I think we'd have to take the whole hour for me to give you a lecture on how the movie business has changed. But um, it, it it just got harder and harder to get good movies made. They became so expensive to make and so expensive to market that then it became so hard to get ones made that I was used to getting made. And, um, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I got to make good movies. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people don't get to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, and I... And familiarity breeds contempt. I had worked with a lot of the same people for a long time, and it just like I hit a I hit a glass ceiling. I was never going to get through. Right. And um, so 
And but somewhere change. in there, you met your wife. Yeah. And even though we never got married, I'd say I was married okay. because whatever we okay. were registered, we couldn't get married back then. So yeah, oh right, registered domestic partners. How long were you together? Fifteen years. Oh wow. Okay, so at the very beginning, I think it was yeah. four. Yeah, fifteen by the time she moved out. I guess. Wow. Yeah. So you're with your partner, right. your wife, um, and when I met her, she lived in New York, and she uh, was she's also quite a bit younger than me, and she was working in the um, animation business. She was working at on a, on Bill Cosby's TV show, Little Bill, for Nickelodeon. Oh my gosh! And um, and then she got offered a job out here working for a big animation studio, which was sort of meant to be. And so yeah. she moved out here with a job and moved in with me. So. And then you guys decided to have kids. Well, I I started first, and because um, I think I was probably. 37, 38, something like that. And um, it's funny, nobody ever talks about this. Like, it never occurred to me that I could have a miscarriage. Mm. I knew nothing about them. I didn't know how common they were. And I came from that generation where we were told, like, you can wait to have babies. Right. Modern science and modern medicine, you can wait. Women are having babies well into their 40s. Yeah. So I got pregnant right away. And, um, like two, three tries, I guess, three tries. Uh, and then I guess it was probably pretty soon, like six weeks in or something, mm-hmm. I had a miscarriage. And then I got pregnant again. Then I kept trying, and then I started taking hormones, and I um, then I got pregnant again. And um, I, I, it's so funny, I can't remember all these things now. And she doesn't remember any of it. I talked to her about it recently. She was like, God, I don't remember that. I was saying that I had a miscarriage at a Stevie Nicks concert. I mean, at a Fleetwood Mac concert. And oh, she my was, God. Oh, Stevie Nicks. And she was like, what? I don't remember that at all. I was like, how can you forget that? Um, but, yeah, so I had um, I had multiple miscarriages, and I had three in vitros. And it it was a real process. Like, I, I have, like, an emotional blackout about a lot of it. Like, I, I can't quite remember the chronology of it because it was like a marathon and it was like a secret like you know it's something you just don't talk about right and And um, you were still working probably your ass off at the time in fact I was uh, the second miscarriage was the worst because that one I I it's eight weeks or something like that no it's like six weeks they I found out that I had twins and that it and that I was going to have a miscarriage, that it wasn't a viable pregnancy, and I had to wait to miscarry, right? And I was supposed to go, I was in the middle of making the movie Unfaithful, the Adrian Lyne movie. One of my favorite movies of all time. I love that movie start to finish. It's such a beautiful film, beautiful story, beautifully told. I love that movie. Well, I think that movie is sort of, uh, was a big um, part of me deciding to become a producer because that movie didn't have a creative producer on it, just a line producer. And so myself and my boss, Elizabeth, we basically produced the film. And um, I spent a good part of the movie on set for the for, for most of the production. And But I happened to be home, um, or I was, I was, I guess I was home, I guess I was there for a little bit and I had back and I was, and I knew I was pregnant. And, and then when I found out that I was gonna miscarry, it was supposed to be, I was supposed to leave the the next day for set, and I had to call my boss, who didn't even know I was going through this. And unbeknownst to me, she was pregnant too, and had been going through 
in vitro and whatever. So, um, yeah. So, it, yeah, I was working through the whole thing. Oh, my God. And so finally, I think the, the last in vitro, I switched doctors and I um, I was so crazy from the hormones. Like, I, I mean, like road rage beyond control, <laughs> beyond, beyond belief. And, um, and, you know, lucky for me, there was another womb in the house and it coincided with her really hating her job. And so I was just like, I, I can't do this anymore. And I didn't want to do it to her because it was like just hell. Three yeah. years. Yeah. Or almost three years, something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so then she started trying. And we thought she'd get pregnant right away because she was like 10 years younger than me. Right. But it took a, it took a while. It took a, a pretty long time. But I guess it was about um, f- four years, like, door to door from the day I started till that we had our first child. Wow. Maybe almost five years. I don't know. What a journey. What a journey. I just remember that the day that we found out the sex and then we found out it was going to be a boy and we hadn't talked about, like, she didn't say to me, like, what do you want? She was like, you wanted a girl, didn't you? And I was like, yeah, but at this point, if we gave birth to a live puppy, I probably (laughs) would be fine. I was just like, You've been through so so much. Yeah. Yeah. So were you both sort of holding your breath through the pregnancy because of the miscarriages? Not not with her because no. she was younger and we yeah. once we knew that her you know, once we got to like I don't know what it was, ten yeah. weeks or whatever we the, had, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. we were like, Yeah, it's all good. <sighs> but I do remember I tell this story a lot to women that I meet who are really going through it. Um, I do remember <clears throat> or women who stopped and are Adopting, or their partner, or whatever, or they had to use an egg donor. Um, that right after we figure out that um, Lorraine's uh, that it was a viable pregnancy, my best friend Allison and I went to the desert for a weekend because I was sort of like, "Is this gonna be my last chance to like, do this right for a right. long time?" And um, and she said to me when we were sitting having lunch the first day we were there, she said to me, "How are you?" And I said, "Oh my God, I'm really good. I'm so happy." And she didn't looked at me and kind of cocked her head and she's like really how are you and she was the first and only person to kind of know that like there had to be something underneath that yeah. you know and I like burst into tears and it was the first time in my life that I realized that you can have two diametrically opposing emotions coexist inside yourself because on one hand I could not have been any happier that we were having this baby and absolutely not for a second thought anything other than this is our child and on the other hand I knew that I would never get over the fact that I wasn't able to carry Mm. myself and they one had nothing to do with the other that's right yeah and they're both equally true at the same time exactly true but it you know what everything happens for a reason and I I don't know if she would agree with this but I sort of feel like Lorraine wouldn't have been able to stay home and be a stay-at-home mom the way she did if if, if I had given birth and mm. handed the baby over to her, you know? Yeah. And I feel like I would have had a much harder time going back to work the way I had to work. I mean, if you know anything about yeah. the entertainment business, I was working You seven. were never home. <laughs> I was home, but I was just like, yeah. the stress was so high. And yeah. Yeah, I was not home. Or if you were home, you were sleeping because you just worked an 18-hour day. Right. Well, that's when you're in production. But as a studio executive, I was just like, you know, up and out the door and just like appointment, meeting after meeting after yeah. meeting after meeting and yeah. traveling a lot. And, yeah. But so I think it would have been, 
harder for me. I don't think I would have been able to breastfeed for very long. And, um, and you know, it's weird. We kind of fell into very sort of traditional roles. Yeah. You know, Lorraine was a stay-at-home mom breastfed our kids for a really long time and was a, she had a blissful two times blissful pregnancies and was happy being pregnant and and really happy to be home with the kids and I loved what I was doing and I went off to work every day and you know it's on on one hand some of my working mom friends who were heterosexual like I'm sorry to say it but you have it easier than I do so like you've got Lorraine at home I got my husband like who's like useless with the child <laughs> like, you know uh, and I remember a friend of mine saying to me that her husband on a Saturday was like I was like well where's your husband because she was like exhausted and had two small children she was like he's surfing it's like he's that's his new hobby and he so he leaves early on Saturdays and doesn't come back until like two in the afternoon I was like are you kidding me yeah I'm lucky if I get to go out and get a manicure <laughs> I'm like I have a hobby. Who the fuck has a hobby when you're a working mother? Because Lorraine mother? was like, great, it's a weekend, you're on. Totally. And she would go have her time. Right. Um, yeah, do you, I don't know a working mom with small children who has a hobby. Yeah, exactly. Are you kidding? Exactly. They're exactly. thrilled if they can get 20 minutes on a treadmill. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, we sort of, I was lucky on one hand, but on the other hand, I already sort of felt like I was in this weird no man's land. Like, I remember when... Um, I started going to these mommy and me classes with Lorraine on Fridays. I would try to go as much as I could, but she started it without me. And, and the women were all sitting around like two o'clock on a Friday, like complaining about their husbands and how hard their lives were. And these were all stay at home moms. Right. Yeah. And I don't know what the hell Lorraine was saying about me, but when I was <laughs> go in there, I would, I, I was like an interloper. They kept, they would be like, my husband, this and that, when he comes home from work and then women would glance over at me and I was like, oh my God, am I like the husband in the room? Like, <laughs> so I wasn't getting the respect of right. like the, the moms right? and the dads like, you know, it's funny. I did get a lot closer to my, my male friends who were dads because, you know, it's like we were both, we were all complaining about that thing of like, you, you work a full day and then you come home and then somebody's like, and you have here's to work the baby. Some more. Yeah. Exactly. Here's the baby. Yeah. And my, a friend of mine who's a comedy writer, um, she's so funny. And our kids are the same age, except for that her youngest is five months older than mine. So by the time, um, my little one was about, I don't know, nine months old. So hers was, you know, a little over a year. She called me on a Saturday and, um, and she said, what are you doing? She said, are you alone? She said, are you at home or are you out? And I was like, I'm out. And she's like, am I on speakerphone? I said, yes. She said, are you alone? And I said, yes. She said, okay, good. I have an important question for you. She said, what are you doing right now? And I said, oh, I got out of jail and I'm going to the grocery <laughs> store, the dry cleaner and the tailor. And she said, oh, that's exactly why I'm calling. What's worse, your worst day ever at work or Saturday? <laughs> And at that point, with like a, a four-year-old and a six-month-old, I was Saturday. like, Saturday. Hands down. Yeah. Going to work was like a break. Mm. <laughs> right? It was. Yeah. So, But it's also that horrible thing, like, that it's the thing that I just, I'm sorry to be like sexist about this and I know that there are lots of exceptions to the rule but there's, well, but, there's a few maybe I don't know if there's lots but 
but I don't have many male friends who have the working guilt that a working no. mother does. No. And I don't care if you're a working straight mom who has a, a, a dad that stays home. Yeah. Or if you have a babysitter or nanny or whatever yeah. it is, it doesn't matter what your situation is with who's parenting your child when you're not around. It's that it's a different kind of guilt. Yeah. I was just interviewing um, a, a writer mom yesterday at her uh, her office in uh, Universal, that big tall building, whatever it is, Universal City Plaza. Yeah. And... Um, she has a two-year-old and a ten-year-old, and she said it's just two agonizing. Ten-year-old, that's yeah. a big spread. Yeah. Okay. And she, her husband is a producer, and she was an actress. And now she's a writer, and um, and she said he just he's and her husband. They're both so lovely. He's so lovely. He's very active with the kids, but she said he doesn't have that guilt or shame. It's just like oh, they're fine. They're fine. And she said, no, I'm just tormented. And I said, I, it's just part of the, you know, chromosomal makeup of being a woman. I don't know. I, it's just, it's true. there's no getting away from it. It's true. And, and I, um, I don't think I could have been a full-time stay-at-home mom. Having said that, like, there's things that happen when I wasn't around that just would kill me. Yeah. Um, and when when Bo, my older son, was he was in preschool, so I guess he was probably like four. He um, broke his arm, and I was in oh. New York for for a while, for like a week or something. From I I I I just remember it was over a weekend, and Lorraine called me on a Saturday, and she was like, "Hey, he fell off of a he a, a slide at the park today, and he hit his arm really bad. And ever since we got home, this was a Saturday late afternoon. Ever since we got home." He just seems really out of it. He looks really pale. And what do I do? And um, God, I wonder if Griffin was even born. He wasn't. So Bo had to be like three, three, a little over three. So she must have been pregnant. And she's like, "What do you think I should do? Should I take him to the hospital?" And and I was like, "Well, why don't you call Dr. Scott, our pediatrician?" And and so he asked her a whole bunch of questions. And he was like. If he seems okay and like he's not crying, doesn't seem to you know, just give him some Tylenol, whatever. And he's like, and see how he is in the morning, and call me. So, and then on Sunday morning, she called me and she said, he seems fine, but it's really swollen. And so I called the doctor again, and he's like, okay, well, you can go into the hospital and everything, but it's Sunday. And you're gonna, we, you want a pediatric or orth, an orthopedic pediatric doctor, and you're gonna be there all day. Mm. And he was like, if you think he's okay, just keep giving him Motrin or whatever. Nothing's bad's gonna come of like him staying home today. And then I'm gonna make an appointment for you and go see this orthopedic doctor in the morning. And so she took him in on Monday morning, and I was in a meeting in New York with like 10 people in a conference room. And a text comes up and a photo on my screen of him there and it just said it's broken and I burst into Aww. tears. I like burst into tears in this room and I was just like it was the first time I really understood the the term where the term heartache comes from yeah. because I literally was like like in physical pain mm. that I wasn't there. Mm. Like physical pain. And I was like I, that was when I knew like you'd throw yourself in front of a bus. Yes. 
before you let your child be in physical pain. Yeah. And the and the guilt that he had, we had gone through the whole weekend, like, you know, sure. it didn't really make a difference, according to the doctor. Right. Because we had stabilized it. And right. Like, we. I wasn't here. Right. But, like, you know, that was it. The fact that I wasn't here was just, like, horrible. Agonizing. Yeah. And that doesn't go away. I remember on the night of the um, Walk the Line premiere in New York, I um, cried myself to sleep because... Um, he had uh, hand, foot, and mouth disease. Mm. It, was, I, it seemed like every time I left town, I just felt so bad for Lorraine. Every time I left town, something bad happened, and he had like a crazy high fever, and she, she hadn't slept in days, and he hadn't slept, and she literally called me and was like, can you come home? And I was like, I can't tonight. Like, I'll come home tomorrow. But, yeah. And I just remember that night, like, crying myself to sleep oh. because it was like, what what, I, what am I going to do? Like, yeah. I can't go. Yeah. I can't leave. I mean, even if you had gotten on the plane, it would take you eight hours That's right. minimum with yeah. check-in and, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know many men that are like that. No. <laughs> no. I, I, don't, I don't know any. Maybe one or two. I know a couple. But even, like... Two of my best friends are, they, they have three adopted children together. They're married. And they are so great about, like, they have a nanny. They um, they send those kids to sleepaway camp for eight weeks at a time. <laughs> They're like, no prob. Like, just no big deal. Uh, I, it's just I a know. different we way of never, being. We never took a vacation without the kids, yeah. ever. Yeah, yeah. Ever. It was crazy. I'm not saying that like I'm proud of it. It's just right. the way we were. Right. So, okay, back okay. to the end of the era at the Fox 2000. Mm -hmm. Was there another epiphany? Was there another moment where you said? Um, it wasn't an epiphany. It was sort of out of necessity. I, um, I just sort of had hit this wall, and I got offered a job that I did, didn't do my homework before I took it. I must have really needed something to crowbar me out of. I would have just rotted away in the Fox 2000 bungalow because I just didn't make a lot of big changes in my life ever. Like, I, you know, nine years at ICM and I've been in this house for 20 years. Wow. And Lorraine, 15 years, and my best friend for, and now it's like 30-something years. And um, I, um, so I, I just was too scared to make a move. I'd been offered jobs when the kids were really young, and I just didn't think that was a smart move. So at the point I got offered this job, it just seemed like a great idea. It was kind of a safe move, supposedly. It's part of the Fox family. It was a step up. It was being president of production. And I got there, and it was like a terrible mistake. Like the first time in my entire career that I was like, I have made a terrible mistake. How soon after did you know that Six it was? Six weeks. Oh, wow. And it was like the the worst like nine or ten months of my life. Like I still have PTSD from it. It was like, and I, I like to think of it as sort of the beginning of the end of my marriage. It was like transformatively terrible. And um, I just didn't realize how protected I was at Fox 2000 in our sweet little bungalow and, and how much I lived in a little bubble and I just didn't do my homework about the people I was going to go work for. and um, So was it, like, <clears throat> the way you're describing it, I'm imagining, like, an abusive situation? It was, like, psychological warfare. Like swimming with sharks kind yes, of deal? Yes, it was terrible. And like, Can I, I had, ask if it was men? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, not to be... Yes. I'm, I'm being sexist yes. now, but, I mean, I just assumed. I'm, I, will, I, don't, I don't think I should expand on it, but yeah. to say it's yeah. a certain kind of men, plural... 
uh, and I was in this really fucked up little triangle, triangulated relationship thing. And I just didn't, I, I just didn't have any experience with dealing with these kind of people. Sure. And I, I made mistakes for sure looking back on it. But having said that, like there was no, my, my emotional makeup is not cut out for those people. Yeah. And, um, and it was terrible. And I realized very soon into the job that I was sort of being, they were trying to haze me into quitting so they wouldn't have to honor my three-year contract. Wow. And literally, like, haze me into quitting. And I was like, no, that's not happening. Do not fuck with a mother who's the sole provider for her family. <laughs> that's right. That's not happening. Mama bear. It took me away from a fantastic... I had a great job at Fox. Like, and there are a lot of perks that go along with working for a giant corporation like that for that long. I gave up so many stock options and like, just, and I, and I really didn't handle my departure great. And I burned a bridge that was important to me. And, you know, I just blindly walked into this situation. And so I got fired 10 months later, kind of like, knew I was going to, but it was that thing of me holding on to get fired instead of having to right. quit. So I was just like holding on. So, but I didn't know it was going to happen when it happened. And it blindsided me. Like I came again to tell you, like blindsided me. Like I, but before I'd even walked back to my office, they had turned off my emails and my phones and everything and, wow. and put out something in the trades. And it was just, it was horrible. It was the first time in my entire life that I had been fired. And it was also the first time in my life where I realized, like, I mean, I was used to being, like, not expendable, ever. Right. You know what I mean? Like, they were really sad when I left ICM. Mm. And I was treated at Fox 2000 like I was a very integral part of the system and the success of the division and yeah. everything. Well, you were. And yeah. And then to go someplace where I wasn't valued at all and um, and just unceremoniously kicked to the curb just because of like weird personality conflict and egos and yeah insecurities and, yeah oh my god I'd love to say more but I won't um it sounds uh, like severe narcissism right, well, for, I'm not going to discuss yeah. it because people yeah. that listen to this will know who the people are and I'm just I'll just say I'll say there's a lot to be said for bad chemistry mm. so we'll, part of it would just be not a good fit yeah. And part of it was my own naivete of what I, what I can tolerate and what I can't tolerate and what's important to me. Mm. And, um, but it was terrible. And it was bad for me as a parent. It was bad for me as a partner. Like, I wasn't present mm. at all. And um, so that, I wouldn't call an epiphany. I would just say a life-changing thing yeah. that was led me to the path that I'm on now. So that I've been on for the past, I forget how many years it is now. Six? I guess. Um, I um, I never. I was like, well, what do I do now? And do I want to be an executive? Do I want to be a producer? Do I want to be an executive? Do I want to be a producer? And we were very producerial at Fox 2000. Like I said, I was on set for most of Unfaithful, and and <clears throat> so I was like, okay, I'm gonna give it a try because there weren't any jobs that I was really interested in, and kind of had enough money in the bank to last for for a bit, and settled out with the the lovely human beings I worked with. And so I was like, okay, this affords me. I'm going to think of it as like a paycheck and I'm going to amortize it like to see like if I was still getting this paycheck, how long does this take me to? I was like, I'll give myself until then to try this. And, mm -hmm. 
I think it was about six months in that Stacy Snyder, who I um, looked up to, have always looked up to, will always look up to and forever be grateful for, for this moment in my career. But we started out at Triad together and at the point that oh, wow. um, she was an assistant there, I was an assistant there. And um, and she'd always been somebody I called upon in my career for advice. And she just always was the smartest person. and. And I went to her at, when I first left this other job and was like, what do I do? And she said to me, there are very few people like us left in the business. And when she said us, I like really was like so touched. And she said, you know, there's just not that many people that know how to identify a good piece of material, a good story, and know how to build that mm -hmm. and then make it into something good. Like it's a skill and there's... And there's just not that many people that still, you know, the, the business had changed in a way where what I did, which was reading a lot of books and developing and spending time developing and trying to make a movie as good as it could be, it was just not necessarily the, the most valued thing mm. at that point. Like, I couldn't develop a Marvel comic book if, you know, I, or a horror movie. Like, I just, not my skill set, right? Right. So she said, there's not many people like us left in the business, so just put your head down and do what it is you do well and, you know, call the writers and directors you know and read books and and things will fall into place. And she told me that and I and so did Peter Chernin told me something very similar who had been my boss and at one point at Fox and so I was like, okay, the two smartest people I know, I'm gonna take that advice and I did that. I just started treating every day I woke up like, and, and Lorraine and I would sort of fight about it because and to her I didn't have a job. And meanwhile, I was waking up and working harder than I did when I had my job. Yeah. So I was like, every day I woke up and I was like, okay, what am I doing today? I had a list of people I would call and read and just meeting after meeting. And, and six months later I had amassed like a little group of projects. And 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 when I went, first went to see Stacy, I think I practically cried in her office. I was so shell shocked from what had just happened. Yeah. So I I sent her an email six you know, six months later and was like, Okay, I'm on my feet and I have some stuff and I'd love to talk to you about it and so I went and um saw her and uh and I kind of like said that I was jealous of someone that we both knew who had just made like a just a like a baby first look deal at a studio and but that I felt like it, it legitimized him in a way that it's just really hard to be on your own without having that stamp of a big company behind you. And, mm. and um, I was like, she said, well, I'll, I'll talk to everybody here. And I was like, oh, no, I, I didn't come in here to ask you for a deal. I would never be so presumptuous. I came in to talk about some stuff. And, and within two seconds, she and I had sort of fallen into, have you seen this and do you watch this TV show and have you read that book? And and then I was like driving later that day and she like emailed me and was like, I want to make a deal with you. And I, I, I just remember I was in Culver City picking my kids up, I think. And I like almost like crashed my car. I was just so happy. Wow. Uh, so yeah, that, that started me on the road of what I've been on and I will forever be grateful to her. That's so amazing. Yeah. Um, so, I remember when I moved into my office at DreamWorks and um, it was a tiny little room and I had brought with me the girl that had been my assistant at the previous job and had gone on to somewhere else because, and every day she would like call me, you know, and I was like, could you please land somewhere where you can bring me back? And so I called her and was like, come with me. And I promoted her to be like a junior executive and um, her name's Bronwyn and I love her. And 
Um, and we were just, the two of us moved into our little tiny office. And I'll just never forget when I pulled on the Universal lot and like into the DreamWorks, you know, parking lot and went into my office. And I was like, this is a new chapter. And this feels, this feels like a really important one. But more importantly, it felt right. Yes. And I felt a little bit like you can never look back and be like, God, I wish I would have taken a different road or that road sooner or whatever. Right. And, but there's a part of me that's like, kind of wish I hadn't spent 15 years mm. at the studio. But having said that, like it was, it was just better back then than it is now. And right. so there was no reason to leave. Right. Know? And so it was shortly after you made that transition that you then were nominated for an Oscar. Am I right? I know you're you're very humble, so you're gonna give it. That's kind of a big deal, Carla. Am I, am I blushing? <laughs> you're you're blushing. Um, I wouldn't say shortly thereafter. And, okay. Um, um, here's what happened. I was there for um, a, a year, and I set up a bunch of stuff, and it was going really well. And I hadn't been in production or anything, and um, and then they re-upped my deal, and right around that time, um, this company. Sydney Kimmel, SKE, came out. This guy, Jim Tauber, called me and was like, we have mutual friends and can we have coffee? And I want to talk to you about coming and running our company. And I was like, well, I'd be happy to sit down with you, but you have the wrong girl for the job. Like, I know nothing about the independent film business. I like to spend in pre-production what you spend in an entire movie. Right. I was like, I, I'm used to hiring million-dollar screenwriters and be the person that wins in a book uh, in a book bidding war like, because we had the deepest pockets, like, I don't know how to make independent movies. I know nothing about it. I don't know about foreign pre-sales. And, and he was like, no, I know I don't have the wrong person. Just have lunch with me. So we did. And he explained everything to me. And, and But what he explained was kind of appealing because it was sort of a hybrid situation, like, where I still have a paycheck, a fraction of what I used to get paid as a studio executive. But it was a paycheck. It was enough to float me, but also could be hands-on and be a producer and have get credit. I mean, it's kind of hard when you work on a movie for like five years and do all the work and then have my parents like till the, to this day be like, what does the studio executive do? Why is your name not on the movie? You said you do the same thing as the producer, but why don't you have your name on the movie? Right. Um, so it was like appealing this hybrid situation. And um, I, so I didn't want to make the mistake I had made before. Instead of talking to no one, I went around and talked to everybody and was like, should I take this job? Should I take this job? Should I take this job? And um, again, Stacy was like, she was like, why wouldn't you? Like the way the business is going, the kind of movies that you like to make are getting made independently now, yeah. you know? And, um, and filmmakers are so fed up with, with being in development forever or having their lives completely micromanaged when they make a film that it's becoming more appealing for them to make movies independently and whatever. And then I went and saw a, another friend of mine, Blair, who's an agent, and she said to me, she was one of the few people that knew that I was you know, having trouble at home, and she was like, how are things going? And I was like, not great. And she was like, take the job. Mm. You're going to want the paycheck mm. if you guys split up. And um, she said, but more importantly, like, how much money did you make this year? I was like, nothing. And she said, um, how are you going to feel two years from now if through no fault of your own you've gotten nothing in production? Because sometimes that happens as a producer, sure. right? You know, infantile development, like, takes a while. And, and she said, how are you going to feel two years from now if you still haven't made any money? 
So you say, because for all intents and purposes, you're kind of killing it as a producer, but you've been doing this now for over a year and like you, nothing is close to going into production. And I was like, I think I'd feel terrible to yeah. take the job. Yeah. So I took the job and I was there for three years. And, um, unfortunately the guy that hired me who I just adore left the company 10 months after he hired me to, to retire, to become a therapist. <laughs> and, uh, so angry at him. <laughs> And um and it changed the DNA of the company a mm. bit with the new boss. But right at the point that he left, um, when I got to SKE, uh, Hell or High Water, which was called Comancheria then, had sort of was packaged. It had a director, and they were trying to move, make the movie, and I just knew it wasn't going to get made. And I had tried to buy the script in my previous job, and my boss, the one that fired me, didn't like it, and um. And so I had, but I had a relationship with Taylor, the writer and his agent. And so I got there and I was like, I'm going to get this movie made. I I don't think it's going to get made the way it's right now, but I'm going to see it through. And if sometime soon it's not coming together, I'm going to make it fall apart and I'm gonna put it back together. Wow. And, um, so that's what I did. And, um, so yeah, so I found the director, David and, um, I was in post on something as that I would, I was build in the process of building the company and and a slate because I had cleaned house and gotten rid of almost everything with the exception of a few things and and unlike being a studio where you have a massive amount of support I had nobody <laughs> it's like I had a junior executive and so I had to do everything myself and I was in post on one movie and in kind of like early prep on something else when Comantria was going into production and so <clears throat> I. Um, I brought my friend Julie Yorn onto the movie to do it with me. And um, so, yeah, so we made the movie, and it was my first full producer credit. Like, we're, wow. And, um, and whammo, you got an Oscar nom. <laughs> That's amazing. Crazy. It was a really, it was a really amazing run. It was really, and it was a hard one. It was one of the hardest movies I've ever done, and from start to finish. What made it so hard, comparatively? Um, it was just hard. Yeah. <laughs> Enough said. Got it. Got it. It was just hard. Yeah. I don't, yeah. everything. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, like, couldn't be more proud of it. Yeah. Love the movie so much. Yeah. And, um, and I'm, and I'm actually, I'm really proud of all the movies I made there. I made five movies in three years and I'm really proud of that, but mm. it was time to leave when I left. Mm-hmm. Sort of done. And independent business was fun and exciting and I learned so much. I know way more about that than any of my friends that have been at a major studio for a yeah. long time. Yeah. And again the business is now in a massive upheaval. So I'm in the te- television business now, you know. Are you are? Are you mm-hmm. pursuing that? Oh yeah, yeah. I what have. does that look like? I mean, I notice like I haven't watched much television lately just for no reason, but I've noticed all these um, streaming services that are getting these huge stars, that are getting these amazing writers, and it's like, oh, I never thought I would see the day where George Clooney was producing a TV show, uh, Sandra Bullock was on a, I mean, I have a few projects when one of them is like, got a major movie star attached, and um uh, again, the kind of material that I'm gravitate towards is all going the way of television. So, and so I made a first look deal in TV recently, and so yeah, I'm focusing a lot on it. I mean, I 
I'm just doing both now. Because, right. And now when I look at a piece of material or talk to some talent, I'm like, I, I don't think of it as film or TV. I think of it as, do I love this? If I love it, who else will love it? And if we've put, figured this out and put it together, what's the best platform for it? Yeah. Period. Like, yeah. not like, is it movie or television? Right. It's more like, just where's the best, where is this going to, where is this going to be most successful? Where can this live and actually survive? Find its audience, yeah, right. Find its audience. So I just, it just occurred to me, I wanted to ask you this question. <clears throat> can we pause long enough for me to put my sweatshirt back on? Absolutely. Or the heat? It's Absolutely. one of the two. It's yeah. fucking freezing. I know. <laughs> Go ahead. Take your time. See, long-winded. Look how the time oh is. Oh my God, I love it. I <sighs> love it. Love it, love it, love it. I didn't stop recording, but I'm going to have Derek edit this out. Okay. Um, it's fascinating. You know, I did go to film school. I wasn't <laughs> one of those people because I couldn't, but I went to film school in Where Boston. Where did you go? BU. Ah. Before, I mean, you know, this was 1997 I graduated, so we actually cut and spliced literally our film together with tape. <laughs> which was a whole thing. But um, th the question I wanted to ask you is, throughout the trajectory of your career in Hollywood, how have you seen women's roles in production change? And I'm not talking about actresses. Um, I'm talking about, like, behind the scenes, like producers, writers, creatives. I have one really simple answer. Okay. Not much. It's not how, it's has it. Not very much. Yeah. And that's why there's this giant movement at the moment. And I admit, and when it first started, when the whole, you know, it's like there's two different things going on. There was the Me Too thing that happened. Yeah. But then also started this whole other conversation that had already begun to happen about the in, in inequality in yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. For everything. From yeah. Executives, writers, producers, yes. directors, and um, and actresses too. I don't mean to leave actresses no, no. out of it, but I'm just yeah. yeah. Um, it it just hasn't changed enough. And I um, I recently got a little bit involved in sort of an offshoot of uh, of of um, of Times Up. Um, that's about mentorship and whatever, and about like you know going mentoring women and getting them to leg up and you know all these people I know that are now making the pledge to 50-50 right. and it's great it's really really great and I have this TV project right now and it's like it's a true story and it's about women and I'm the producer and there's a female star and there'll be a second female star and a really strong female writer who's been around for a long time has seen it all and um so, yeah, there's me, there's the writer, there's the star, there's the two women it's based on. And in my first conversation with these two agents and the male producer that's been hoisted on me uh, to talk about directors, they were all talking over me. I couldn't even get anyone to hear me. They just started pitching all these ideas, and it never even occurred to them to be like, hey, we should start with a woman director. Wow. Never even occurred to them. When I was like, oh, wait, hold on. It's really important to us ladies. Yeah. The three of us. Yeah. That we uh, start with trying to find a woman director. Don't even want to entertain any men until we've like exhausted this yeah. list. And they're like, oh, yeah, good 
just, yeah, just not conscious. I guess, you know, here's the thing. I'm older than a lot of my counterparts just because I've had two careers, right? So I think I'd be in a different place if I had been doing this the whole time. But um, So I have a slightly different perspective, but um, I think it was Linda Obst wrote an article right when the whole Harvey thing happened, and she wrote an article, I think it was for The New Yorker, I don't know, but she was talking about her generation of women, and there were some kick-ass women, and it was like her and Laura Ziskin and and um, Dawn Steele and Lucy Fisher and like just all these Paula Weinstein and and these were the women I looked up to. That's how I got the job working for Laura because I would like follow these women around and be like, I want to be like them. But part of that was like we had to act a certain way and also had to accept a certain amount of inequality, you yeah. know. But also the whole Me Too of it all. It's like, I mean, I have stories. And at the time, I wasn't feeling at all like I was being sure. sexually abused sure. or whatever you want to call it. I It was just part of the it's what you, culture. culture yeah, you absolutely. Know? And um, so there's that part of it. But then there's the part of it of like, you know, somebody asked me a while ago. I was at a party and it was just a woman who's a pretty well-known television writer producer and she said to me what do you think about this whole thing about women and writers and whatever it was just when the conversation had just started Mm -hmm. and I was like look I'm as much a part of the problem as anyone because when I was at Fox 2000 you know when we were trying to put a director on the Devil Wears Prada like we didn't say like you know this really should have a woman director we never said that. Right. We just looked at a list of directors. And the women who were on the list were just not, didn't have a body of work as good as the men that were on the list. Right. And we didn't say, like, well, the reason they don't have this body of work is right. because, and we should really start going out of our way to, yeah. you know, give these women better material and whatever. Like, it was not part of the dialogue. Yeah. So now I'm like, I'm so thrilled that, that that's where we are. I mean, I literally am like meeting all these fantastic women directors now and women that are becoming directors that were cinematographers and editors and yeah. And um and especially these women that are younger they're doing that I was in a relationship with somebody that was a editor and is now directing and watched that transition and how it was such a bonus that she was a Absolutely. kick-ass woman. Yeah. As opposed to a detriment. Yeah. So that's cool. That's awesome. That's hopeful. Makes me feel a little old and wish that I could roll back the clock a little bit for myself, but yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, yeah, I don't know if I can say I've seen it change very much, but I think it's changing now. Yeah. The tides are turning. It's just a slow roll. Mm -hmm. Um. I mean, I could talk to you for at least no. another hour. Did but we cover everything? No. No, no. Of course we didn't. But we covered a lot. We covered too a much. Lot. No, 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 no. Definitely I not I just want to know, was I the chattiest of any of the people? Not at all. Okay, good. Oh, not at all. <laughs> no, you were perfection. Are you kidding? Um, so we have come to the time. Don't mm-hmm. be nervous. I ask everyone the same question, so there's okay. nothing. Um and there's only one like weird question, and you don't have to answer everything. And okay, um, so I'm going to ask you the three questions I ask every guest okay. first, and then we'll go into the lightning round. What do you think about Carla when you hear the word MILF? 
the original uh, uh, an acronym. Yes. Is that yes. right? Uh-huh. That's what I think about. Yeah. yeah. And there's a part of me that's sort of like, oh, and there's a part of me that's like, am I one? Is that great? Right. <laughs> what part of you is like, oh, that just that it's like an old porn genre? Just like, like when it, I don't know, actually, I have to think about that. Um, I think when it first started, it seemed like cool. Like, oh, that's great. Yeah. Moms are sexy. Yeah. But then I think it took a slightly sleazy connotation at some point, right? Right. Well, it started as a as a porn genre, I'm sure, coined by a, some dude. Right. You know? well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and then uh, it became sort of this part of the vernacular in just pop culture. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because I. I mean, part of the story is that I started pole dancing when I was like 38 and sort of <clears throat> came out of the fog that I'd been in for the first four years of my son's life. And I was like, oh, I, I feel sexy. And so I started um, kind of thinking about that word and using that word. And then again, and I may have shared this with you earlier, so I can't yeah. remember, but uh-huh. the, like everything I know about being a mom is from women that I have followed, moms that I have followed. And so that's kind of how I came up with this. But it is both for me because it's like, I used to think that once I became a mom, I wasn't allowed to be sexy or feel sexy or be sexual or I don't know why. Mm -hmm. That's just what I thought. And also I think maybe what was projected to me, you know, from pop culture and things, but so anyway, that's that's yes, a little I, backstory. I, I, okay, good. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's something you've changed your mind about recently? God, I feel like not that long ago I said, "Oh, I've totally done a an about face on this." Something I've changed my mind about. I don't know. Let me think about it. Okay, I'll come back. Okay. Um, how do you define success? so differently than I did 20 years ago. Well, my initial answer would just make me feel like a failure because I was going to say, like, <laughs> success should be, like, just a feeling of um, contentment and, mm-hmm. and you know, peace and to feel like you're living your authentic life, you know. Um, but... I'm so hard on myself that I then that would have to put I'd have to put myself in the unsuccessful category if that was my mm-hmm. definition. But um, I think success is um, feeling like you know that you're doing you're doing the best you can do in whatever it is you're doing, mm. whether it's in what you do for a living or as a parent or as a friend or I mean I am so hard on myself. And so my personal meditation a lot is, did I do the best I could? Mm. Yeah, I love that. I think we could all and I, use I that. I mean, this is going to sound really corny, and I've really been thinking about this a lot because my birthday's coming up, and I seem to get really sentimental about this very thing around my birthday, which is I think the greatest success in my life is that I have surrounded myself with such amazing, loving friends, my whole life. I have such a great deep bench of friendship mm. and and my family. Like I have a really wonderful family and um and the thing I'm most proud of 
in the last few years has been surviving the divorce and being a great mom. And yeah. I know I'm a great mom. Yeah. That's like for me, I go to bed at night being like, oh, terrible. I'm a shitty producer. I don't work hard enough. I don't exercise enough. But I can get named 30 things that I beat myself up for. But I rarely like go to bed feeling like I'm doing a bad job as a parent. Mm. I do think I'm failing in the um, area of uh, screen control. Uh, oh gosh, we could do a whole episode but on that. Putting that yeah. aside, like yeah. yeah, that's for me. I that's like so that. great. I'm happy for you that you feel that way, because I don't always feel that way about, you know. And it's hard doing it in, as a single parent, exchanging the kids back and forth. And oh my god, it's. I mean, I read you that text. Yeah. It's like, it's it is so hard. Yeah. It's not. It's been four years, and it's like not. It's not. Yeah. It's getting better. Yeah, you get into a rhythm, mm-hmm. but it's it's still. But then that rhythm gets thrown up every, every June, course. whatever the oh, day yeah. is. Oh God, <laughs> I know. Um, okay, mm-hmm. do you want to circle back to that one? What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Or not do you yet. want to wait till the end? Okay, yeah. so now we're gonna do the lightning round. Uh oh. Ocean or desert? Ocean. Favorite junk food? Fried chicken. Oh, yum. I make really good fries. Oh, yum. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, that's not really even junk food, is it? I guess salt and vinegar chips. How about that? Oh, they both. I mean, together? Yeah. Can we make some right now? <laughs> that sounds amazing. Movies or Broadway show? Movies. Daytime sex or nighttime sex? Nighttime. Texting or talking? Talking. Cat person or dog person? Dog. Have you ever worn a unitard? No. Shower or bathtub? Shower. Ice cream or chocolate? Mm. Chocolate. On a scale of one to ten, how good are you at ping pong? Fucking good. Yeah! (laughs) Do you see what's outside? (gasps) (laughs) Fucking good. So you're like an 11. No. No, I just need more time because I've just right. taken it up again of in the last course. year or whenever we got that ping pong table. That's so fun. Do you play with your sons? Mm-hmm. That's so fun. We uh, have a, what I call Friday night dance party um, ping pong. Right? I take my little speaker outside and we put on the dance party playlist and um, my older son and I play ping pong. That's amazing. That's amazing. He'll always remember that. Um, what's your biggest pet peeve? What is my biggest pet peeve? Being the brunt of someone's joke. Ooh. Like being the being the person that gets teased or I don't know, I'm just that person, but mm-hmm. I guess but I don't know if that's a pet peeve. That might be like a just a weak spot. <laughs> <laughs> we can call it a pet peeve. I don't know if I have pet peeve. I, I um pet peeve. Um Everything sounds too lofty that comes to mm. mind, so mm. I don't know. I like I your answer. We're going we're gonna to keep it. Okay. If you could push a button and it would make everyone in the world 7% happier, but it would also place a worldwide ban on all hairstyling products, would you push it? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> 7%? 7%. No. I might very reluctantly at 80%. There you go. 
Um, superpower choice. Invisibility, ability to fly, or super strength? Super strength. Would you rather have six fingers on both hands or a belly button that looks like foreskin? <laughs> Can I say neither? Yes. Absolutely neither. <laughs> what was the name of your first pet? Simon. What was the name of the street you grew up on? Johnston Street. It's funny, I got my mom sent me a picture of our house today. Oh. So your porn name is Simon Johnson. He 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 sounds like he has a mullet and a big mustache. <laughs> he totally does. <laughs> and maybe even bell bottoms. <laughs> yes. With sparkles on yes. the bottom. Um Okay, last last time we're going to see if you want to answer what's something you've changed your mind about recently. And if not, that's okay. I, I, honest to God, I can't think of anything. That's okay. But give me an example. Like, some, something someone else has said. Botox. Or, um, uh, what's someone else said something about? Aging. Uh, I don't know why I'm thinking changed my mind that. about that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a pill for that? <laughs> Uh, I, I'm blank. I'm blanking now. I literally don't yeah. know if I have changed my mind about anything. Yeah, that's okay. I'm I'm in the middle of changing my mind about how I feel about technology at home and phones and video Meaning games. Allowing and, more of it or no? Wanting to have less of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. My son. This and, Fortnite thing? Yeah. It, I've got one on Fortnite here oh. and the other one on League of Legends in the man cave. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a nightmare. Bad. And I know I'm a terrible mirror for them with my phone in my hands. Well, so. I, I do this. I struggle with this also. So. And because our businesses are on our phones. Mm-hmm. That's part of the problem. But yes. I know, and I don't, I don't have a solution either, but I know I've got to cut it down because I can see it affecting him emotionally, socially, the anxiety, the, it's just not healthy. And yet I don't know how to put boundaries around it. So if me you figure either, it I out, don't, that's know. what I'm saying. I'm, I, I'm terrible enforcing the boundaries and it's really hard when they aren't the same in both households. That's and, the thing too. And, and I, also I, it's, I, he, he looks forward to it. It's like a treat for him. It's like a relaxing treat. So I'm like, it's kind of like yes, taking cookies and by the way, away. And also gives you a little time exactly, to catch up on your emails. Exactly. I know. Um, the other night I came out, I got woken up at a quarter to 11 when my 14-year-old was over there. My bedroom's way over there. And I got woken up because he was like, oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> Fuck, dude, no. And I was like, and at 10, he told me he was almost done with that game. And so I marched out of my room and I slammed the computer shut and went in League of Legends. You know, if you drop out of the game, you get penalized because right. you screw it up for everybody. Right. And he cried. And we had a whole thing at 11 o'clock at night about why I feel like it's bad for him and how much I've seen it change him or whatever. And he just kept crying and told, said to me, I need scientific evidence. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I guess what I was going to say is I was like, I've changed my mind about the fact that I kept saying, well, you know what? My kids are really good kids. They're smart kids. They, they're, we travel a lot and they're interesting and they're interested. How bad could it be? And recently I've been like, I think it's pretty fucking bad. Yeah. And I think I have to do something. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. My kid is, he's addicted. 
Did you see the 60 Minutes piece? No. Is there scientific evidence in that? There's the beginning of scientific <laughs> okay. evidence about the addiction. You should watch it. It was okay. Anderson Cooper, 60 Minutes, okay. Screen Time. Google. Okay, okay. I will. Um, I now heard twice in the last two days that all of these guys in Silicon Valley, do you know about this? No. A ton of like the most successful people in Silicon Valley are now putting their kids in these special schools. The kids have no technology. So they know something. Yes. They know something. And then there's the blue light. I mean, yeah, that's a whole other. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, that's it. I've changed my mind about how liberal I am with my check back with me in a few months. Yeah. <laughs> well, and if you get a solution, let me know. I don't have and a I'll solution. The, the solution is like being willing to have my kids be mad at me. That's the thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. That's <laughs> a hard one. That's a hard one. Carla, you're amazing. Oh, thank you. This thank was you so, so much. Fun. This was really, really fun. What, I mean, again, I could sit here for another hour with you. This is a, so. this is a real cure to the Sunday blues. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Carla. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. Tune in next week. I have another amazing MILF for you. And I just love you guys so much. Have a beautiful, beautiful week. Get out there and love yourself. Bye.